0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. The philosophy of deconstruction, most famously pushed forward by Jacques Derrida, has left an undeniable dent on contemporary thought, and even religion has found itself in deconstruction sites, with church, faith, and even God put under philosophical scrutiny. But is this a one-way street, or is there something faith might teach deconstruction? This way of framing the relation is itself questionable, since deconstruction itself is an indifferent, impersonal force, something that simply happens as part of reality. But this gives it a certain seductiveness for theorists, who don't simply want to bear witness to its work, but to master it as a tool, wielding it as they please, unwittingly falling into the very sorts of traps deconstruction often unravels. This is one of the main ideas Chris Bozel wants to remind us of with his new book, In Kierkegaard's Garden with the Poppy Blooms, Why Derrida Doesn't Read Kierkegaard When He Reads Kierkegaard. Written as part academic monograph, part dialogue between philosophy professor and theology student, the book stages a confrontation between Kierkegaard's fear and trembling and Derrida's The Gift of Death where he claims to draw deconstructive lessons from Abraham's famous leap of faith, although Bosel finds the lessons he draws questionable. In fact, Bosel contends, Derrida doesn't seem to have read the text at all. Derrida, renowned for his capacity to find the smallest cracks on the margins and in between the lines of philosophical and literary texts, blatantly misses many of the actual points Kierkegaard was trying to make, and in doing so, illustrates the uniqueness of Kierkegaard's inquiries into the nature of faith and subjectivity. In critically analyzing Derrida's work, Bosel finds opportunity to remind us of what deconstruction can and can't do in animating commitments for justice, while also suggesting that a Kierkegaardian faith may offer a more productive possibility for thinking through those very commitments. Chris Bosel is an associate professor of theology at Drew University. His other publications include Reading Karl Barth, Theology That Cuts Both Ways, and Risking Proclamation, Respecting Difference, Christian Faith, Imperialistic Discourse, and Abraham. Chris Bosel, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen.
0: It's great to be with you. I really appreciate the invitation.
1: Yeah, very much looking forward to talking about this book with you. The first question I always like to ask guests, could you introduce yourself to listeners, tell us a bit about who you are, uh, mainly as a scholar, what your main areas of interest are, what your work and research tends to focus on, that sort of thing?
0: Uh, yeah, happy to. Uh, my name's Chris Bosel. I um, got my master's and PhD at Emory uh, University in the graduate division of religion there in constructive theology, um, trained really in constructive theology, engaging, uh, primarily modern theological figures and issues. Did a lot of work with, uh, both post Holocaust stuff and, uh, postmodern theology. That's where I met, you know, started reading Derrida. Um, and then for 20 years now, I've been, uh, Fortunate enough to uh, have been teaching Christian theology at Drew Theological School, which is part of uh, Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Um, it's uh, it's been a great place to work. Progressive United Methodist uh, identified seminary that also has a, a really strong PhD program, and so I've tend to both in my teaching and work. Uh, I've morphed into more of a sort of doctrinal systematic theologian, but still with a very strong constructive bent. Um, and I tend to find myself continuing to struggle with the questions of how, if how, and to what extent can uh, traditional theological resources, confessional traditions of faith, um, cetera, be um be resources for progressive social engagement in today's world rather than just the problem that needs to be overcome and critique so the critique is obviously needed but are there constructive theological resources there that can actually feed and and call us christians in particular uh that's my audience um into progressive social visions about what the Jesus business means. And so I'm always, I find myself just mining that vein uh, in, in different ways over the
1: years. Yeah, and Kierkegaard is going to be a really great, rich resource for that, I'm sure.
0: So Yeah, he has to, been and continues to be, yeah.
1: Yeah, so to kick this conversation off, this book we'll be discussing is primarily about staging a confrontation between Derrida and Kierkegaard, but underlying that confrontation is another one, namely between you and what you at one point referred to as the deconstruction as love and justice school, the most prominent member of which is John Caputo. So you share some of Caputo's progressive ethical commitments, but are skeptical uh, if the Derridian deconstruction he champions with his constant mantra that deconstruction as justice can actually deliver the justice he desires. Could you maybe give us an introductory sense of what's going on here with what you see as Caputo's overextension of certain philosophical ideas and the gaps that are left behind?
0: Uh, yes. Uh, thank you. That's the, my relationship with Caputo, Caputo uh, on all on my side, of course, just my reading of him really drives a lot of uh, the, the work in the book because he has been so important to my own understanding uh, as of deconstruction, in particular, in Derrida, um, and he is in in the context of uh, progressive theology and progressive sort of folks who who engage Derrida deconstruction. He is a force to reckon with. He's been very influential. Um, so I'm always, in one sense or another, arguing with Caputo, but it's because he has given me so much and been so important uh, as a formative influence. But I do feel like the the more I read Derrida and feel like I'm getting a sense of what is going on there, I, there's a couple of things that I, that I find myself arguing with Caputo about. Um, and this book, I th- there's probably two things he does that I'm, I'm trying to sort of push back on and give alternatives to in this book. Um, and the first is, I, uh, I'd say the, the first lapse uh, in his reading, because I think he gets Derrida right, but then uh, we'll sort of um, uh, lapse into the kind of reading that, that he warns us about um, in, in the next page or the next part of the book. So uh, first of all, I th- the main issue is Caputo, for me, forgets his own best advice to us. Um, that there, there is no master word or master concept in deconstruction. Everything is deconstructible, including justice. And so he warns, uh, you know, that particularly around justice, we need to be careful because we're always in danger in the kind of progressive, de- you know, engagements with deconstructive that he's involved with and I'm involved with. We're always in danger of turning justice into a master word. And so we need to avoid that. Um, but then I think he goes on to then turn justice into a, a master word or a master concept. Um, and that's what I'm trying to point out and, and push back. He'll, he tends to then treat just, deconstruction uh, and, as justice, and so then justice as a kind of non-deconstructible concept, uh, as if the movement of deconstruction, which is supposed to be incessant and infinite and limitless, he he teaches us, uh, somehow sort of stops at the concept of justice. Um, And he doesn't allow deconstruction to move through the concept of justice in the way that he is helping us see how it moves through all our particularly religious concepts. um, For example, God. Um, And of course, Derrida is the source material for this, uh, what I feel like is a confusion, because he uh, Caputo is working with Derrida's own phrase, deconstruction is justice, that in a particular essay, The Force of Law. um, And so I try to show how I think in the context of what Derrida is doing in that piece, yes, deconstruction is justice. If we say that justice is this, which is in Derrida, a kind of X marks the spot of a abyss or absence um, that always undermines our attempt to universalize law, et cetera. So if that's what we mean by justice, then yes, we can say deconstruction is justice. Um, But uh, that's not what Caputo often says justice is, or that's not the way Caputo often will talk about justice when he is saying then deconstruction is justice following Derrida. And that's kind of the second lapse or, or a left turn, For me, um, when Caputo follows Derrida saying deconstruction is justice, the way he talks about justice and his use of that word tends to, in my reading, identify justice or allow the reader to assume that he's identifying justice in the way that the biblical prophets and liberation theologians or religious uh, progressive uh, activists identify justice in terms of justice for the widow, orphan, and stranger. That's the classic phrase that progressive postmodern folks are always using um, when they talk about how deconstruction has, you know, has an ethical uh, commitment to justice. And I just think that's a misunderstanding of what deconstruction actually is. Um, uh, And so in in that move, then for me, Caputo is – forgetting his own best advice and turning deconstruction into the type of thing that deconstruction deconstructs, which is, uh, you know, visions of social, progressive, structural justice that uh, are communal and structural and uh, have substantive content with substantive particular others. All the things that deconstruction and its movement will move through and render substitutable and replaceable, et cetera. So that's, for me, that's really at the heart of what I feel like needs a corrective in in Caputo's reading of Derrida and of deconstruction um, as justice. Yeah,
1: excellent. So. To kind of pick up right off of that, against this uh, kind of approach you've outlined of Caputo's, you'll be championing in this book what you call a Kierkegaardian confessional faith. And to hone in on what this is, you'll stage a sort of confrontation between Kierkegaard's short little text, Fear and Trembling, and Derrida's reading of it in The Gift of Death. How does honing in on these two relatively short works allow you to play out this underlying confrontation you're trying to carry out?
0: Um, well, this is the funny part. Uh, it really happened by accident. Um, it was not this was not the book I set out to write by any means. Um, so I stumbled into it, but once once I stumbled and figured out where I was, then uh, I, I I was happy to find myself uh, in that position and really ran with it. But um, basically, I started out trying to write, Uh, very slowly a kind of master work on, on deconstruction and theology, right. That would, that would address Derrida's whole, whole career, all his major works and really, and do the kind of critique of Caputo that I just talked about and kind of do something that would kind of once for all (laughs) settle, settle the the matter on these issues that were bugging me. Um, And of course that was just a, a, um, you know, an unrealistic uh, project to, to launch on. Um, but uh, a couple of things happened that made me change course and make some decisions. Uh, and one was uh, I got, <laughs> I did a couple, you know, I was working through some of Derrida's stuff uh, on this big project. And then I got to gift of the gift of death and I just got stuck on it. And I, I started, you know, spending a, a day per sentence. I just went down the rabbit hole and found that I couldn't get past the gift of death onto other stuff. Um, and so that uh, really meant I had to rethink my timeline um, and uh, what this book was going to be about. And part of the problem was, uh, well, if it was a problem, it turned out to be a gift, was that I had just taught a course on Kierkegaard, a, a version of a course I've taught a few times. Um, and so I had just read Fear and Trembling, you know, for again, for the umpteenth time uh, and had seen some new stuff uh, and sort of came to a new appreciation of my own understanding of Kierkegaard and my theological reading of Kierkegaard. And then I was reading The Gift of Death and there, of course, the, the central feature is his reading of Fear and Trembling. And with that recent engagement with Fear and Trembling in the context of Kierkegaard's whole sort of theological uh, thought, my understanding of it anyway, then I just, you know, I'd read The Gift of Death before, but this reading was suddenly I could see what seemed to me like really problematic Uh, Misreadings of Derrida and ways the Derrida just wasn't actually reading the text, but just very bits of it, uh, kind of cherry picking passages to serve the deconstructive project of the gift of death. And so that's uh, that really started bugging me, and so I found myself, um, you know, wanting to point out all the ways Derrida was getting Kierkegaard wrong because what had been happening in my own theological and scholarly trajectory was I was moving from a kind of philosophically centered interest in Derrida and deconstruction and its relationship to religion and theology to a more robustly theological interest uh, where I became more interested in Kierkegaard and his theology than I was in Derrida and deconstruction. And that was happening sort of behind the scenes while all this was going on in my research, um, Uh, Efforts and so um, that's uh, that's how I ended the book ended up being basically a reading of the gift of death. Uh, So it's a commentary on the gift of death, and within that, then uh, a counter. I'm staged my own counter commentary on fear and trembling to counter uh, Derrida's reading of fear and trembling in the gift of death. So it. What became, you know, the masterwork that was going to address all Derrida's work ended up being a still very long book, but on one quite small book of Derrida's, The Gift of Death, uh, which has within it, you know, a commentary on another very small book, The Fear and Trembling. And that just became a whole which I could not, I became obsessed with. And there was so much to do there. There was, that just became the book. There was I was running out of time. There was nothing else to do. And that was turned out to be kind of the exciting uh, stuff I wanted to do. It allowed me to sort of figure out for myself how I was a theologian in relationship to this deconstructive philosophy of religion stuff that I also had a passion for. And so this book, writing it, became kind of a laboratory for me to work out a sense of my own voice or position in those conversations.
1: Yeah. It if that like it was, sense, if that yeah, yeah. Sounds like it was a really productive, uh, accidental discovery. Um, Yes, exactly. um, So to move on uh, and kind of develop this a little more, this book has a lot of moving parts. So you're critically reading Derrida's reading of Kierkegaard so as to carry out a critique of John Caputo's reading of Derrida, um, to put it somewhat simply. uh, Adding to all this is the somewhat pseudonymous style of the book. So a lot of the book reads as a professor delivering a course lecture on Derrida. Uh, Alongside that, there's a theology student raising a number of complaints uh, about what he's hearing about Derrida. And then on top of that, there's you throwing in some of your own commentary interspersed throughout all this. So aside from kind of lightheartedly playing at Kierkegaard's own use of pseudonyms, why did you decide to write the book in this way? Why not write that more traditionally styled academic monograph?
0: Uh, yeah, well, this, this relates to, you know, the journey I was just describing. I did start out attempting and intending to write a traditional style monograph, Um but I, I got hijacked along the way um, and ended up writing something which for me was much more fun and I hope is much more uh, compelling and interesting, though it is very complex. There may be too many moving parts in there and I leave that to the reader to judge. I just, uh, but it ended up being the book I wanted to write and had to write. Um, part of that journey was also, uh, you know, it's, was a classic case of necessity being the mother of invention because um, part of what was going on at the same time as sort of me getting to the gift of death in my research schedule and then just never getting past it because of the Kierkegaard stuff. um, There was also, you know, it's happened like happens to many of us. uh, Life was intruding, intervening. My parents were having health issues. So I had a couple of research leaves that, that got interrupted and hijacked where I just had to take care of my folks. And I wasn't able, you know, to follow through with with my research schedule. So there was also the sense in which time was running out. I was losing big blocks of research time to write the book I was intending to write. And so when you find yourself in those positions, you, you know, you have to think, well, what can I do? I need to make some decisions here. I need to make this book smaller or more concise or something different than what I intended to, because I'm just not going to be able to, f- to finish in any in any reasonable manner. And so um, part of then what happened was I realized I just couldn't get past the gift of death. And so, well, why not just make the book a commentary on the gift of death and hash out my my Kierkegaard issues with Derrida and then also my, my deconstructionist justice issues with Caputo within that kind of laboratory? Um. So that's so that's where that decision uh, came from. It's like okay, that can just be a very focused book, and I'll just use it as hopefully an illustration of these general issues I have with the way deconstruction gets read in progressive, sort of postmodern academic contexts, et cetera. Um. But then the other thing, that, then the next thing happened, which was I wrote a chapter of that book. Um as still a traditional monograph, but in this much more focused uh, sense and and uh, intention and goal. And I read it back and just bored myself out of my skull. It was just horrible. And I just couldn't even, you know, my eyes were just rolling up in the back of my head. So then I was really worried and despairing, uh, trying to do, the the sort of critical engagement with Caputo on what I think is the overly ethical interpretation of deconstruction, and then critiquing Derrida on his reading of Kierkegaard and Fear and Trembling, and then giving an alternative theological reading of Fear and Trembling, trying to do all those pieces in the same voice from the same location, just was not working. It was flat and boring as hell. So then I was at another impasse, and I was like, I'm not going to spend... Another probably still a couple of years, you know, pouring my heart and soul into a boring book that's ineffectual and, uh, you know, and lackluster uh, and that I'm can't, I can't even enjoy reading. And so I sat with that problem for a while um, and having read enough Kierkegaard and Derrida, of course, the idea of perhaps using this, the device of uh, some pseudonyms. Uh, playing roles and taking up the voice or positions of differing perspectives and arguments uh, occurred to me. And I thought, well, I could try that because part of what was in my own engagement with the gift of death, um, my experience of what was happening in my reading and my research was very lively and passionate. And I found myself scribbling in the margins, you know, Come on! Exclamation point! You got to be kidding me! Um, and none of that was coming through. Uh, none of that sort of passion, frustration, but also fun and, and you know engagement was not coming through the text I was I was writing at all. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe the, using the different pseudonymous voices will liven things up. Will make it more interesting and fun to write, and it might help capture the kind of the passion and the fun and the engagement and the, the, the kind of the sarcasm, the, the the fun parts of what I was actually experiencing, think reading and thinking with Derrida and arguing with him and Caputo in my head uh, and trying to come up with a interesting, constructive reading of, of Kierkegaard's theology. Um, so I, I said, well, I'll give it a try. Um, and I, so I came up with the, with the couple of voices, um, You know, a philosophical reading of Derrida's Gift of Death and then a theological reading of Kierkegaard that keeps interrupting that. And then I'm my own voice is trying to uh, put the, you know, reflect on what that conversation might mean for my own theological interests in in both those figures. And um, it ended up working, at least for me. It allowed... My sort of the fun and the lively, passionate engagement that was happening in me as I was arguing and thinking with Derrick Acaputo, Kierkegaard, um, it allowed that to get on the page at least or feel like I was getting it on the page. And then as I read some stuff back, it it jumped a little bit. It had some liveliness to it in the way that the traditional monograph just did not. Um, And so I had no confidence that it was that anyone would ever publish it uh i wasn't sure as a finished product it was going to work for anyone else but me um but at that point i just was that i just needed to write the book i wanted to write i'd already lost a lot of time and it was always going to already going to be late you know on my on my publishing schedule anyway and so at that you know at that time you just sort of sometimes in life you say well This may be risky or not the best move in terms of my career prospects or that, you know, it might not make my dean super happy, but I'm going to write a book that I want to write. And so I just rolled the dice and went with it. And that's, you know, that's how the pseudonymous project uh, came up and I decided to run with it. And now I'm really happy I did, but I have no idea if it works for anyone else but me. Uh, But it ended up being the book that I wanted to write. And so when I look back over it, it's, uh, you know, I like what I see. It's like, yeah, that's that's kind of what I wanted to say about this stuff. So yeah,
1: I mean, I certainly think it paid off in terms of just readability. It was really an enjoyable oh, that's uh, book great. to go through yeah, sure. and kind of hear those different voices. The, um,
0: the first the first attempt was not was not trust me when I was writing to write the traditional monograph that was not very readable. So I. Looks like it might've been the right move to make.
1: Yeah. So uh, moving past kind of this preliminary stuff and turning to the real core of the text uh, and via the uh, professorial pseudonym, you look at Caputo's misreading of Derrida and deconstruction and a dual move is detected. On the one hand, Caputo follows many philosophers in dismantling certain assumptions about binaries, insisting that deconstruction forces us to live without any sort of metaphysical guarantees. However, he then will turn around and turn deconstruction into just such a guarantee, a benevolent force that dishes out certainty and justice. Could you unpack this kind of contradictory dual move and the broader implications for Caputo's philosophical and ethical commitments here? Um,
0: uh, yeah. Uh, and I've, uh, I've already, I think laid out a uh, sort of the foundation of this answer previously when we were, uh, question one or two, I, f- I forget which one it was just talking about how I feel like Caputo, right. Says deacons, you know, justice is not a, uh, there's no master word for deconstruction. Justice cannot be a master word for us. And then, I think he turns justice into a master word. So I've already said a little bit about that. I don't want to repeat myself, um, but uh, I I think at this point I could say maybe a little more about um, uh, about why it bugs me or what what's what what gets at me uh, with that, and like why I want to you know argue back or provide a corrective or at least what I see might be a corrective. Um, and it, so the part, in the, the little bit in the book that I, that subtitled, you know, the Heideggerian failure of nerve and the James Dean syndrome, that's, that kind of is sort of the playful uh, place where I sort of allow me to sort of vent and talk about uh, my own sense of what, what bugs me about this. Um, and uh, first of all, I would say, I want to make clear um, that I'm, my argument isn't with deconstruction. Uh, I agree fully uh, that deconstruction shows uh, the particular limits of all concepts. So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm I'm a fan of Derrida. I've I'm a deconstru- I'm a deconstructive reader. I'm pro deconstruction. Um, and so my argument isn't with deconstruction. Uh, I think it happens the way Derrida says it happens, helps us see the traces of it uh, without limits. And if we're going to argue with it or disagree with deconstruction, it just shows we don't understand uh, what it is or what Derrida is trying to uh, help us see. It occurs whether we like it or not. So um, uh, my argument is not with deconstruction, and I try to make that clear in the student, the grad student voice. That when they argue, um, they're with Derrida. They're not arguing with deconstruction necessarily, but with Derrida's what they see as poor reading of Kierkegaard, uh, which ends up being bad deconstruction. And then the professor's sort of critique of Caputo is coming out of the same place. Um, but what I th- think happens or occurs in deconstruction. Um, I think is a little different than uh, perhaps how you've described it, though that that happens a lot. And I think that's key. So uh, I think you said something like every, so for deconstruction in its movement, every concept is determined by something absent that is nonetheless necessarily a part of it. Right. Um, and I think that is, I, I want to, question that. And I think that is at the heart of what I see in terms of Caputo's getting deconstruction wrong or turning to sort of a misrepresentation of his own um, insight into deconstruction. For me, uh, I think deconstruction is more radical in relationship to the other business. Um, As I read it, as I understand Derrida and what he's trying to help us see in, in text, texts in particular, uh, is that deconstruction, the movement of deconstruction shows how every concept, everything is determined by a structural absence that is, um, original, originarily, always already in play, uh, prior to any particular other, um, so it's, it's an absence that's prior to the concrete absence of an actual particular thing, of anything. Um, so it's, it's a structural absence um, that is contentless, a general absence, which is not the absence of any particular thing. So when deconstruction talks about the other, the, the other, the alterity, that deconstruction as a distinctive movement is really after is not a particular other or any particular other. Uh, It's a more radical alterity than that. It's a contentless structural alterity that is always already in play, even before any particular other comes on the scene. And so particular others, that's always, that's the setting for the movement of deconstruction to happen and to occur. But, what deconstruction is after aren't the particularity of those actual others, but a more radical pre-phenomenal structural movement that renders all particular others <clears throat> substitutable uh, and, and displaced. And so uh, that when, when deconstruction gets put into conversation with ethics and particularly progressive ethics in progressive contexts, The deconstruction is attentive to the other, is for the other, is about the other. That, the other, gets interpreted as the widow, orphan, and stranger, as those who are othered by society. Um, And therefore, deconstruction is about justice, social justice for those those particular communities who are marginalized unjustly by uh, mainstream society in very concrete ways and concrete contexts. But I think that's missing the radicality of the movement of deconstruction. There's certainly a resonance, and the movement of deconstruction mimics that uh, that social justice movement. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with those others who are our orphans, widows, and strangers that that are are the goal and and. And the point of a justice commitment is for those folks and those communities in their concrete particularity, in concrete context, as valuable, non-substitutable, non-displaceable neighbors, fellow creatures, right, Uh, that claim our obligation and and solidarity and call us to particular acts. My understanding of the movement of deconstruction is it will parallel that movement up to, a, up to a, a certain extent within a certain context, but deconstruction keeps moving so that ultimately in a context where we're talking about the others we mean are the widow, orphan, and stranger, the movement of deconstruction will eventually render those particular others substitutable in relationship to all other others or otherness in general. And this is what you see in the gift of death. Every other is holy other. Um, that's the radical substitution of every particular other for any other. And so I come up with the you know the phrases any other will do for deconstruction. Deconstruction actually does not give a shit about widows, orphan, and strangers. In that they are particular others in particular context. Yes, they fit the bill for de- in the movement of deconstruction. But deconstruction isn't concerned with them. Doesn't stop with them. Because deconstruction is an intentionless, autonomous, structural, contentless movement that occurs without a cause. So that's where, I guess, to unpack probably more closely, um, that's where the disconnect or the mis the, the misidentification occurs is the the le- the deconstructive language about the other and otherness and alterity gets wedded to social justice talk about the marginalized others. Uh, that, that get marginalized by unjust structures of normativity, and they are not the same. And in fact, the movement of deconstruction will eventually, in its ceaseless, infinite, and Caputo rightly says, merciless movement, those particular others of the widow, orphan, and stranger, in their concrete particularity, will inevitably become rendered substitutable by any other, by every other, by, by by the rich CEO, by Caesar and his palace. Um, and that you can, I translate that substitutability as disposability to, to emphasize where deconstruction actually becomes an ethical problem for social justice in the liberationist mode that wants to actually say that the problem is that these particular others are already disposable and that's what needs to be corrected. Deconstruction itself will always be ultimately a problematic movement for that commitment because it by nature renders everything substitutable by everything by everything else.
1: Uh, Derrida links Jan Pataka, Martin Heidegger and Emmanuel Levinas together since all see death as a radically individuating Uh, sort of phenomena, and so is the starting point of being or becoming a responsible individual. This is the point where the student starts to respond somewhat critically, seeing some somewhat unjustified substitutions and generalizations going on, and some moves away from uh, some specific religious content while also claiming to adhere to it. Since this hints at what's to come in Derrida's reading of Kierkegaard, it's worth asking what the student is sort of starting to pick up on here. Uh, yeah,
0: and, and and you're right, This uh, the student doesn't show up till uh, a little later in the book, because, uh, you know, according to the conceit, they're, we're re we're reading their notebooks, uh, basically. Um, and, uh, they don't really have a beef with the professor's reading of Derrida and the gift of death. Um, uh, until we really end up getting to the reading of Kierkegaard and then that triggers all their sort of theological issues. Um, but there is a, there are some things in that first half of the book. So the, the first half of first book, big section of my book is on the first two chapters of gift, the gift of death, which is four chapters in all. The first two chapters are Derrida's reading of Patochka on responsibility as I, that's how I see it. And then the second two chapters are on fear and trembling, the reading of fear and trembling in chapter three, and then putting that alongside Derrida's reading of the sermon on the Mount. um, Some key passages of the sermon on the Mount in chapter four. Uh, And for me, those the first two chapters on Patochka often get overlooked by engagements of gift of death within postmodern theological and philosophy of religion context, because everyone's so attracted to the Kierkegaard stuff, to the very Trembling reading. But I think the Patochka stuff, if I'm pronouncing the name right, um, is uh, is really crucial to understanding what's going on in Derrida's reading of, of Kierkegaard. Um, but what, so, what does end up uh, bugging the student about uh, how the professor's, um, not so much the professor's reading of uh, those first, you know, what Derrida is doing in those first chapters of The Gift of Death, but really uh, what they see Derrida doing in Derrida's reading of Patochka? There are certain uh, theological themes in Patochka in particular. Uh, not so much Heidegger, and well, of course, in Levinas though that he he plays a smaller role uh, in that in the chapter. But basically, the student is picking up on ways that, predominantly in Derrida's reading of Patochka, um he seems to be tone deaf to the few uh, actual theological or religious themes that are there in Patochka's text, or at least that Derrida is is talking about. So Patochka is talking about God as as person, God as other, the transcendent personal other. And Derrida and, um, uh, you know, Patochka's Patochka's, um, uh, critique is that uh, Christianity has never, you know, taken seriously what God as person might mean. um, And Derrida makes a big deal about that hones in on this, you know, the importance of God as person, as personal other to Patochka. Um, and so obviously the theological, you know, theologically invested ears of the of the theological reader, the grad student uh, persona gets pricked up. And then, but what Derrida does with those passages of Patochka that are clearly sort of talking about the importance of God as personal transcendent other, um, and actually uh, translating in a way that doesn't seem to be just a deconstruction of a God as personal other, but an actual misidentification of God as personal other with, uh, well, what ends up happening in those, uh, what the student tries to show is that Derrida will quickly move from God as personal other to any other, and in fact, any creaturely other, any other will do. And so on one page, Derrida says, God as transcendent person as other is key to Patochka and therefore to Derrida's reading of Patochka. But then in the next sentence, in the next page, Derrida then talks about that God as personal other as tr- substitutable by or translatable to any other, and actually a creaturely other. And so there's all sorts of what for the the students trying to point out is mistaken identities between God as personal other and any person as any other or otherness as such in Derrida's reading. And so it looks like Derrida himself is never taking seriously the significance of God as personal transcendent other. So it's it's on those issues that the grad student gets riled up about and wants to start pushing back um, because they're theologically invested. And and Derrida is making a show of attending to these theological themes that are there. They're not hugely present in Patochka, but they are to an extent. Derrida makes a big deal about them, but then completely avoids the actual theological significance of what that might mean for his own deconstructive project, right? So it makes perfect sense in terms of the way Derrida is reading Patochka as part of a, the deconstructive project of the gift of death. But it's a really bad, theolo- you know, it's theologically tone deaf. And in a way that it doesn't seem to recognize about itself because Derrida's is making a big deal of God as personal other and not, and not admitting or not showing the reader when and where he is substituting that, distinctive god as personal other with otherness in general or others it seems like he does it without knowing he's doing it and so that's not necessarily the deconstructive mechanism of substitutability it's derrida um you know getting involved in cases of mistaken identity you know so you could so the student raises the issue of is derrida actually being consistent deconstructively even when he's stumbling onto or engaging theolo- robustly theological issues. And then that sort of sets up, then, you know, the student's comment is this does not bode well. If, you know, if we're going to turn to Kierkegaard from here in fear and trembling, I'm not getting excited about, you know, what Derrida is going to do. If he can't even keep, you know, Patochka's very kind of just structural and general God out there, Uh, in front and center and do justice to that, you know, what's Derrida going to do with the God of Abraham? So, and sure enough, then that's, that's how things play.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll go find out right now. So at this point, we finally get to the professor's reading of Derrida's reading of Fear and Trembling. And at this point, the student really starts to come out in full force with his objections. So uh, first of all, Derrida describes a God who is mysterious and silent, saying nothing and not speaking to us. So the Apostle Paul might have a thing or two to say about God's communications with us, uh, and the student does as well, saying that this idea is not supported uh, by the text in question. So what has Derrida missed here? Um, yeah,
0: w- before we get to that, I just, it's interesting, though, though, not surprising uh, that you you hear and read the grad student as as his, him or his, in, in sort of a male gendered identity, um, and that is probably inevitable because I, I I mean I'd love to just have a conversation with you about how that plays out and what's going on and why because I do make it clear that. Both the professor and the grad student are parts of me, sort sort of caricatured uh, 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 presentations of my own sort of points of view or the dialogue conversations going on inside me, um, and it may be inevitable that you know, uh, grad student reading Kierkegaard and Derrida, uh, you know, we're going to think of as a dude, um, but it's interesting in my in my mind that the grad student is is kind of a composite of a few female theologians that are actually also good friends of mine. And so that, and that that dynamic was an important part of the dialogue. So it breaks up kind of the way, you know, (laughs) Kierkegaardian scholarship, scholarship on Derrida, scholarship in general in continental philosophy just tends to be such a, a male dominated conversation in in the writing of it, that I gave the grad student in my mind, I was hearing, you know, the voices of uh, particular theological part, conversation partners of mine that are friends who are women. So that became sort of a uh, a female gendered voice for me. And that made it much more interesting for me to, in terms of how the conversation and the arguments get played out. Um, and then, of course, I used the non-gendered language to try to signal that the possibility that this that you, you could be a sort of have sort of a relatively confessional Christian commitments and love Kierkegaard and not and not be a straight, cis, you know, heteronormative dude. But that that there's room there for other folks to get to inhabit that space. And indeed, I know plenty of other folks who aren't uh, like me who inhabit that space. And they're the voices that I'm hearing when I'm writing uh, this, the Gratzkutten voice. But it's but I just think so when like hearing you, I haven't really been able to talk to a lot of people. The book's not out there that long. And it's very thick. So I haven't had much conversation with readers. But so this is just an interest. I It's just an interesting point to hear you talk about C.K., the grad student, as, you know, him and his. It just it I notice it because in my own mind, um, uh, they're it's their female gender, though I try to present them as uh Non in a non gender binary way, so that's just a whole thing. I just wanted to name that. Um, And no, uh, fair enough. Yeah, my my hopes for you know folks who are somewhat theologically traditional who love folks like Kierkegaard. You know, it's obviously that is a male dominated conversation, but I'm hoping it doesn't have to be. But it certainly has been historically. Um, uh, So anyway, that's just a, a side thing that I just thought was interesting, and I would love to just you know have coffee with you sometime and talk about, uh, what you think about that. And, uh, if I'm just being unreasonable or, um, or unrealistic, but to the, to the point of the question, um, right. What does Derrida miss?
1: Uh, on God's communication yeah. or lack thereof. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, and this is, this is really for me, the heart, this is the theological heart of the book. So, um, there's just a couple of things that are really just uh, a ground zero that everything else, all the theological sort of implications for me anyway, in my theological reading of Kierkegaard, kind of uh, circle around or, or ripple out of. Um, but what I try to show and what I uh, what I think is clear when you read Fear and Trembling, um, is that what... Derrida Misses is that God speaks. God is not silent. Um, And uh, Kierkegaard's, well, De Silencio, you know, Kierkegaard through the pseudonym De Silencio, spends a lot of time in the first half of Fear and Trembling retelling the story. Of course, this this is not a close reading of the biblical passage. It's taking all sorts of liberties. It's a Thoroughly Christian supersessionist reading of the story of Abraham, you know, for in a Christian context, for the purposes of talking about Christian faith. So all those, uh, you know, uh, this is we shouldn't think of this as a close reading of the biblical text. But Kierkegaard is retelling a version of the Abraham story that makes very clear of that's a history of a back and forth between God and Abraham and God saying stuff and Abraham listening and responding and God responding and doing. And what the, and what I find, well, what I find interesting that it's not just Derrida's reading, but you, I found this in my, the research I did for the book that even in traditional Kierkegaard studies, particularly folks who read Kierkegaard as philosophers, even Christian philosophers, as well as non-Christian identified philosophers often will just leave that stuff out. They focus on the three problemata and the, uh, and the teleological suspension of the ethical, and they leave out the narrative of God talking to Abraham and promising Abraham that Isaac will be his inheritance and the blessing of all nations. Um, and it seems to me that that actually is the ground for everything else, that, that Abraham, the content of Abraham's faith is the belief in the promise, the divine promise of Abraham, I mean, of Isaac, uh, A, that, that you're going to get this kid even when you're old and it'll have to be a miracle because you're both are too old to actually have a kid. So even from the beginning, Isaac, Abraham and Sarah get Isaac from death. He's back from death, which you could do a lot of interesting deconstructive stuff with. And Derrida could have, but he doesn't He doesn't read that. Uh, he leaves that out. Um, so uh, the point, I think it's clear that the point that Kierkegaard makes about what Abraham's faith is, before then, he goes on in the second part of the book to talk about the teleological suspension of the ethical and how this relates to Hegelian context, etc., is that Abraham believes the promise that God gives that about Isaac. That Isaac will be Abraham's inheritance, make Abraham the father of all nations, and through that be a blessing, father of a nation, and through that be a blessing to all nations. Abraham's faith De Silencio makes clear, is believing that promise, even when God says, okay, go ahead, go and, and sacrifice Isaac. Um, every moment on the way to Moriah, Abraham is believing that this is Isaac who has been promised to me, and so I will have as my inheritance and will as a blessing to all nations. Even to the point of raising the knife, De Silencio's point is, Abraham never stops believing that God will be faithful to the promise that he will have Isaac for this life, even if that means resurrecting Isaac after the knife is plunged. And so for Kierkegaard, faith faith is not Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac for God. That is infinite resignation. (laughs) That's giving up the world for God. For, I think it's really clear if you read all of the text that for De Silentio, and I think Kierkegaard is using De Silencio's reading for his own purposes, Abraham's faith is that he believes, never stops believing that he will have Isaac for this life, even as he raises the knife, even if he has to plunge the knife. He never gives up Isaac to God. He holds to Isaac on the basis of God's promise about Isaac. And so faith is this double movement, and that's Kierkegaard's language, of giving up its infinite resignation. Abraham gives Isaac up completely to God. He's willing to, to plunge the knife, lets him go completely. But all the while, at the same time, holding to Isaac on the basis of God's divine promise, on the content of that promise and his knowledge of that content. So there's epistemological content in um, what, Abraham, what Abraham does. So that's uh, that's the main thing that Derrida misses. He leaves out the divine promise, and then he leaves out the double movement of faith, that what faith is is holding to that the content of that promise, Abraham's knowledge of what God has said, even as he's raising the knife. And so if you ignore those two pivotal, what I think are obviously pivotal things in how Kierkegaard is using the Abraham story, the Moriah story, then yeah, what you get is willingness to sacrifice uh, um, with, with in absolute silence without knowing anything about God. God is silent unknown. And so faith is just a blind stab in the dark. Yeah, that's, but uh, as long as you're not reading fear trembling, uh, you know, you could say that, but if you actually engage the content of the text, that's, you know, the comical part is that's infinite resignation to which De Silencio and Kierkegaard is opposing to Abraham. So that's really at the core of uh, the grad student voice's argument with Derrida is he just ignores what it seems in my, in my reading now uh, is central to Kierkegaard's, the, the reading of the Abraham and the Mariah story that, that Kierkegaard presents. And so what Derrida does with it works wonderfully in to serve his deconstructive project, and I'm I'm all for deconstruction. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that. But it's just a really crappy reading of Fear and Trembling, which is annoying, especially if you're a theologically invested reader. It just misses all the theolo- theology and the really cool stuff that can happen if you actually did a deconstructive reading of the theological stuff on faith that's actually there. Um, so that's what you know, that's what the student gets annoyed about. And that's sort of me channeling sort of my own frustration with Derrida. There's such missed opportunity there. Um, And it doesn't, we don't get to it in Derrida's engagement just because he doesn't seem to read the text that closely.
1: Yeah. So in some editorial notes, you suggest uh, that faith and deconstruction do have some parallels since deconstruction and faith are not content for intellectual possession they will always frustrate our attempts to master them a crucial difference emerges that deconstruction is a generalized dynamic whereas the Kierkegaardian faith you are teasing out has a specific content one you may not be able to master but can try to live out can you explain kind of the parallel and the distinction here
0: um yeah uh So the, the parallels, like one, a good example of the parallels I'm seeing that I think Derrida would see too, if he actually engaged, you know, the substance of the substantive part of the text of Fear and Trembling. Um, uh, is this notion that, that I try to hammer home that there is... Um, That Abraham's act of faith isn't a blind unknowing in in uh, in the shadow of radical silence from God. Uh, That's the way Derrida presents it, Um, but it actually has epistemological content. Abraham knows something: it's God's promise, and that God can do the impossible. And so, it's a basis on the basis of that knowledge of faith, then Abraham acts not just to sacrifice, but to hold on to Isaac despite being ready to plunge the knife. So that. So, I'm, a lot of the, my, my commentary on Fear and Trembling is trying to show that the faith of Abraham, as made use of or as interpreted by Silencio and so Kierkegaard, um, has, has content, has substantive epistemological content to it. Abraham knows something, uh, and, and that knowledge of something, the knowledge of the promise, is driving, is the reason why he does what he does. He's banking on the promise. He's counting on the promise. Um, and that just goes, that's absolutely in contradiction to Derrida's reading, which says Abraham doesn't count on anything. There is no uh, there is no taking account of. It's just blind unknowing. Um, that's just a straight contradiction of the way Kierkegaard is presenting what Abraham is doing. Um, so for me, that is an example of how the kind of, you know, I end up calling sort of Kierkegaardian confessional faith as a shorthand. I'm not really happy with that still, but it's just a provisional uh, category to sort of put my finger on what I was, what I'm trying to name and sketch out in the context of this book. But so let's say, so Kierkegaardian faith based on that interpretation of the Abraham story, the, the Mariah story, um, itself then uh, produces deconstructive effects. So rather than being the opposite of knowledge, the Kierkegaardian faith based on Abraham is a form of knowledge uh, so that what you have is not knowledge and it's opposite, it's not a binary opposition, it's the distinction between do two different kinds of knowledges, uh, to misuse the plural. Um, and that for me, Mirrors much of the effects of deconstruction that Derrida is always trying to get us to see, for example, in the relationship between speech to writing Um, rather than uh, an opposition between speech and its opposite writing, which is how the concept, the philosophical concept of both speech and writing get constructed in the West. uh, What Derrida helps us see is that speech itself is a form of writing. Um, and is, bears the the, the, car, the characteristics or the marks of writing, so that instead of a binary opposition between speech and writing, you have two, a distinction between two forms of writing. And that same deconstructive-like move, that displacement of the binary of what knowledge is, especially in philosophical context, and what religion or faith is, and the way those two things get opposed, um, Kierkegaardian faith itself displaces... Uh, that binary opposition renders it impossible and puts things on a move in a very slippery way. Uh, What looks like a binary opposition actually is a distinction between two forms of the same thing. Um, So that's an example of the parallels I'm trying to see as we go along. And these are parallels that I think Derrida misses because he's not actually reading the theological dimensions of fear and trembling. So I try to point them out and then just suggest this is, this is where a deconstructive counter might go, right? It would we, we can see that faith itself produces its own deconstructive-like effects upon itself um, as well as other things. And so there's the parallel going on. Um, uh, and then I lost my train of thought. So the difference, right. So there's, I'm trying to show parallels. <clears throat> the difference is that deconstruction is a general structural contentless, as I've said before, in my my reading of it, intentionless, subjectless, contentless structural movement that is incessant and happening always already um, in relationship to everything, um, and so the movement of deconstruction uh, has no cause; it has no source or origin. Its deconstructive effect or efe, deconstruction. The traces of deconstruction are effects without a cause. Uh, and that's the mystery of it. And yet they're effects that hold to a certain exigency or law, but without having an intentional cause. And that's part of what I think Derrida is trying to get us to see and what's it's so hard for us to catch hold of because it's so counterintuitive to our thinking. Um, the difference is, despite the parallels I try to show, the faith produces its own deconstructive-like effects in the way it displaces binary oppositions, etc. But um, the deconstructive-like effects of Kierkegaardian faith are the effects of a cause. They have a cause and an origin, and that is the agential, intentional, divine subject that is God, who isn't just God in general, but is a God who does very specific things and says very specific things, according to well the story of Abraham, but more in the Christian context, according to according to the Gospel, um, and and it's in relationship to that particular God who says and does particular things, and in the Christian context, specifically coming into God coming into existence. It, through the incarnation in Jesus, uh, that is to have, those effects are the result of a source in relationship to something that is actually there, that faith points to and is affected by. Um, And that is different. The effects mimic deconstructive effects in many ways, but they are from a very particular source, relationship with God, in Kierkegaard's reading anyway, whereas deconstructive effects do not have a cause. They just are always already occurring, but according to a certain exigency. And so that's the big difference. And so it's the the very thing that causes the deconstructive-like effects of Kierkegaardian faith that are effects upon itself, right, that undermine faith's own foundations and ability to master and control itself or others or anything. Um, That very... Uh, cause of the effects <clears throat> is precisely the kind of thing that deconstruction deconstructs a subject, uh, subject, an agential, intentional sub divine subject. Those are all prime targets of deconstruction. So um, that's where the difference again, for me becomes interesting because Kierkegaardian faith, this is one of the big points of the book is deconstructible all the way down. The point is to not to protect Kierkegaardian faith from deconstruction. You can't, but, faith deconstructive characterizing faith on its own itself produces deconstructive like effects that complicates the relationship between deconstruction and that faith in very interesting way and in slippery ways. And so makes the encounter always open and to happen ever again and never comprehensible and, uh, and completable, etc. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So turning back to our theology student, um, Uh, The student argues that to be a knight of faith means actually concretizing one's faith by responding to calls for social justice, since the knight of faith may experience things but cannot possess them. Uh, This is both a destabilizing notion of faith, that one can live, but not master, and this lack of mastery must apply to things like property or goods. Uh, This leads the student to claim that this faith requires one to attempt to spread the possibility of experiencing certain things, such as faith, food, and shelter, to everyone. So Kierkegaard's faith ends up being a critique of private property and its attendant discrepancies in power and a call for different social forms that encourage experience without mastery or ownership. Could you explain uh, how the leap of faith connects to these sorts of concrete ethical commitments?
0: Uh, yeah, this, again, gets really to the to the heart of the my constructive, what I hope is the constructive contribution of the book, particularly for uh, communities of faith and issues of um, religious ethics, Christian ethics, as well, as well as general ethics for for everybody. But um, uh, yeah, this is uh, this part of the the reading of Kierkegaard is where it gets very constructive and uh, very loose. So um, this is uh, my my constructive reading of. Uh, a Kierkegaardian faith based on what's going on in Fear and Trembling, but read within the context of Kierkegaard's wider corpus. So I'm not being limited by the Fear and Trembling text here. Uh, It's reading that text in in Kierkegaard's uh, whole corpus, especially the more explicit theological works. Um, But I'm definitely taking liberties and uh, running with what I think is there in Kierkegaard, but definitely taking it to places where he does not go and may not want to go if he had the choice. Um, and largely what's, what's driving the the bus for me is, uh, reading Kierkegaard through the very critical lenses of liberation theologies, uh, in particularly, in, in particular, um, And so it's only as not just informed and instructed, but corrected by the voices of liberation theologians of all kinds that I think you can, you can get the kind of Kierkegaardian faith as source of progressive ethics that I'm, that I see and I'm trying to sketch out. So I've tried to be very clear that I'm, I'm naming this as the kind of religious or faith based ethics that, uh, is possible for a Kierkegaardian confessional faith as I framing it, but I don't have Kierkegaard's permission, right. That this would require being very critical of Kierkegaard himself on many, uh, uh, social issues, political issues, justice issues, uh, race, gender, sexuality, you know, um, the lot. So I want to be, want to be clear about that. Um, but I, I do think that there, we're not completely leaving Kierkegaard behind. There, I do believe he does open the door to a confessional Christian faith that ha- opens out and uh, issues in a call for so generally progressive um, ethics in, in even uh, a quite a radical way. And for me... That connection is rooted in, uh, and this is where we're moving from the text of fear and trembling to the wider corpus of Kierkegaard's work, Um, because the the, the root really for Christian Kierkegaardian faith uh, is the Jesus event, is sort of the crazy, uh, paradoxical, rupturing event that is God becoming into existence Uh, in the incarnation through Jesus, which is, of course, only according to Christian confession. We're not going to presume that that is the case uh, as if it's obvious to everybody, but that's the confession. And so it's A, the concreteness of God being who God is and giving God's self fully to the creature in the Jesus business and the actual particularities of the Jesus business that I think provide the roots for progressive social justice uh, visions for Christian communities. And this is where, A, so so Kierkegaard makes the the Christocentric move of God is who God is in Jesus, that we actually get the real God in the Jesus of Nazareth story. And when we look at that story, what do we see? We see uh, not just uh, the condescension of divinity to humanity, but God shows up on the on the human scale at the bottom of the spectrum, uh, the lowest of the low, um, to use uh, Kierkegaard's language. And so it's the actual social, political, cultural location of Jesus as a cultural, political, social, economic failure um, that is the source for uh, a kind of Christian progressive Ethics In the way that that resonates with, um, for example, James Cone's Black Liberation Theology, it's Jesus's social location in and amongst and in solidarity with marginalized, oppressed communities as, as a poor Jew in Palestine under the boot heel of Roman Empire there and then. And so now, if we're going to be silly Christians and confess that Jesus is risen and alive and for the world today— In today's context, in the United States, that means alive and well and in solidarity with the African-American community, with communities of color, people that get oppressed by white supremacy. And then, of course, we can, after reading womanist theology and feminist theology, those who are oppressed by gender, by by, uh, sexual identity, um, it's Jesus's, that God shows up in Jesus in the social location and the cultural location that the biblical story anyway uh, gives us that then is the fuel to make a connection between Kierkegaard's Jesus of the lowest of the low and James Cone's Jesus as, as Jesus as black, both literally and symbolically. And that opens the door um, to a, a, a sort of a very liberationist informed Um, social ethic based on confessional, traditional, uh, you know, um, beliefs and convictions about Jesus, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as God incarnate, which, of course, are very problematic and troublesome in many ways. But I'm just trying to open the door for this possibility. There is actually something there in Kierkegaard, especially when read with liberationists, that is quite radical. And that Jesus is a total failure, is at the is at the bottom and and it's a rupture to power structures in Jesus' own time, and if we believe that Jesus is still a reality, living reality in our own in our own time, as well as his own time. Um, and the last the last bit would be to say, <clears throat> and this would be to get us back to the the text of fear and trembling, how this would combine with the double movement of faith, which is <clears throat> If that faith is, now we're talking in a Christian context, faith in this God for us, in this Jesus uh, event that is socially located on the the bottom of history, on the underside of history. Um, But that double movement of faith itself also radically disappropriates everything from us as possession. Uh, It's an infinite resignation. We give up everything in the world, the world itself, including ourselves. To God, we relinquish all possession, <clears throat> and then the promise is we get that back as gift from God, but not possession. And it's a gift that supposedly uh, is for everyone and to be shared equally with all God's creatures. <clears throat> and uh, that itself means no private property, as you point out. We own nothing; everything is God's. Nothing is ours. <clears throat> And we all share it equally, which means we are. When that doesn't happen, and structures are put in place to create inequality, then that faith is a call to resist and dismantle those structures. And that opens out. If you read Kierkegaard that way, the double movement of faith uh, is opens is a call into a life without possessions, which is a radically anti-capitalist, anti-colonialist, anti-racist. Uh, anti-nationalist vision of how we are to live together on this planet. And you could put quite radical meat on those bones. And so I'm, that's the, I'm just trying to make an argument, open up that door as a possibility for those who are already silly enough to be confessing Christians. Um, I want to get this on as a possibility for them. And also hopefully help John Caputo recognize that can, a confessional faith isn't all just a problem, but actually a certain kind of confessional faith can provide the kind of radical politics for the widow, orphan, and stranger that he himself wants deconstruction to be a source of. But as you said, I think deconstructive deconstruction itself can't deliver in that way, even perhaps as robustly as this kind of Kierkegaardian faith that I'm trying to sketch out
1: can or might. Yeah. Yeah, turning back to Derrida, he reads Abraham's silence as a sort of metaphor for the broader human condition in which we are unable to truly express ourselves, although the student points out this misses the unique situation Abraham is in and the fact that he is not silent because he has nothing to say but because he has a very unique relation to a certain truth. You also allude to Kierkegaard's epigraph in Fear and Trembling and the title of your own book to bring out some of the Kierkegaardian themes of indirect communication and secret messages, something essential to understanding many of his earlier pseudonymous works such as Either Or or Stages on Life's Way. So could you explain what is the meaning of Abraham's silence and why is it specifically abraham's silence and not everybody's
0: um yeah uh thank you and this is probably uh what i struggled with the most and still struggle with and in terms of understanding exactly the way in which Kierkegaard or de silencio at least uh is talking about abraham's silence um within the as and not being able to be understood within the hegelian context not being able to be translated into the universal it's that bit that i think um i i think i've with the help of uh of actual uh you know experts on hegel i'm not uh like merrill westfall and others i think i've got a glimpse of what's going on there but i feel like it's a it's a glimpse that just in the next minute slips through my finger. So it's very hard for me to hold on to. I think when I look at what's in the book now, I held onto it long enough to get it down on paper in, in a way that kind of hold, tentatively holds. And I think might hold water. Um, but it's really, it's still very slippery stuff for me. And I think to understand all that's going on there, uh, you really have to know your Hagel and the, and the very particular way that, De Silencio through Kierkegaard is, is doing a specifically anti-Hegelian cr- cr- critique. That's what, you know, Fear and Trembling is. And I follow Westfall in, th- in saying that all Kierkegaard's corpus is basically an attack upon not just Christendom, but Hegelian Christendom. Sort of Hegel is the boogeyman uh, that Kierkegaard is always trying to critique, A, a sort of Hegelian appropriation, interpretation of, of Christianity. Um so I, I I feel like I still struggle with being articulate on this uh, particular issue, but I'll, I can say a couple of things. You know, all, so I refer the reader to to the, the section of the book. I think I do an okay job there. Um, but here on what's going on with the the silence of Abraham and how is it different from a general silence? And for me, in particular, to the general structural silence that Derrida is talking about and that Derrida identifies Abraham's silence as. So the real issue for me, because uh, I'm not just interpreting, trying to give a theological uh, constructive reading of faith, uh, fear and trembling here, but I'm also trying to do it as a critique of or a corrective what uh, I, th- I see Derrida doing, is that Derrida uses <clears throat> the language about Abraham's silence, which is which is in Fear and Trembling. It's not central. It happens in certain parts of the book, but Derrida picks up on Abraham's silence and really makes that the central figure for his whole reading <clears throat> in a way that is valid because it's there in the text, but I think then it distorts the way he reads the whole text. Um, but for Derrida, as I understand it, He's seeing Abraham as an example of a general deconstructive silence or the way that the movement of deconstruction or deconstructive reading uh, shows or reveals or makes visible the way all speaking is structured by a kind of uh, and made possible by a kind of structural absence. So every time we speak we are not speaking or we are being unspoken. Um, And this is what you, you say about, you know, ever really trying to be able to express ourselves fully or truly all speech is haunted. So deconstructively, if I'm getting it right, all speech is haunted by, but in a way that is actually providing the conditions of possibility for speech itself by speech's impossibility, by the impossibility of absolute speaking and absolute meaning. So, uh, my understanding is Derrida is using Abraham and the language about Abraham's silence in the gift of death, particularly as he's reading it as a night of resignation, where the silence mirrors the silence of God and the absence of any knowledge, uh, or any knowing as a kind of deconstructive figure to illustrate, uh, the kind of the the deconstructive structure of all speaking. Every time we speak, um, we are haunted by a form of silence. All speaking is made possible by the very conditions that always undermine it, limit it, et cetera. Um, So the, the possibility of speech is its impossibility or the impossibility of speech is the condition of possibility for speech, that kind of deconstructive formula. So that's, and again, I have no, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a believer. Yes, Derrida, you're right. That's about the deconstructive structural limitations of speech that are very distinctive. It's not just that where there's limits to speech, but the limits to speech provide the actual possibility for speech to occur and be effective in the limited ways that it is. So anyway, I love all that stuff. What, again, bugs the graduate student, and as, as a caricatured version of me, is that the way Derrida uses Abraham as a figure, a deconstructive figure, for this general structural haunting of speech by absence and silence. So, all speech is a form of silence. Speech isn't opposed to silence. You have diff- two different forms of silence or two different forms of speech. Um, what I try to show is that two things Abraham, in all his speaking, even the speaking of faith, is subject to deconstruction, right? So, this is all true for everything that Abram has to say at any time, including whatever he might have to say as a speech of faith. I believe in deconstruction. Um, but, so, so Derrida is right in terms of the way Abraham, like all of us, are subjected to uh, the deconstructive silence that is the, the structural possibility of all speech um, and of its, all of its undoing. But what I'm trying to point out is I think in the text of Fear and Trembling, um, the, the a- Abraham silence that De Silencio is trying to point out is a different kind of silence. It's a particular silence. It's not a general condition of all speech. It is a particular condition uh, the the resu- that is the result of God's speaking <laughs> very particularly and doing some very particular things Um And so, again, this goes back to sort of the difference between deconstruction and Kierkegaardian faith. The predicament of Abraham's faith in whichever way it is haunted by a silence is the prior, very particular concrete speaking of God's promise and how that intertwines with the command to uh, sacrifice Isaac. And so it's... The the challenge, the condition of faith, Abraham trying to speak about that, about the particular way he is holding to Isaac on the ground of the divine promise about Isaac, on that kind of form of knowledge of faith, even while he's raising the knife and will plunge it. But in the knowledge, or at least the faith, that if that's the case, God will resurrect Isaac and he will still have Isaac in this life. It's trying to say that that is ultimately a form of uh, a foreign tongue, a divine speech that cannot be understood by general human epistemological and linguistic understandings that don't take into account divine special divine revelation that God actually says this particular thing to Abraham, do this particular thing. It's only as a response to that particular divine speech and promise and action that these particular dimensions of silence arise. The general deconstructive dimension of silence never goes away. Abraham is in the grips of that at all times. But there's this other thing that also is going on, and that's what Kierkegaard is trying to get at. And and I don't, via the grad student, don't want that to get lost in the deconstructive concept. We could do the deconstructive concept of silence, but there's we still haven't, dealt with this particular silence of faith that Kierkegaard is trying to get us to see or deal with in Fear and Trembling. And I want to do that, too. So that's what I try to uh, that's how I I try to stage that interaction or engagement and 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 help us see what Derrida is missing. But then what what that means and how that plays out is very tricky, slippery stuff. And that's where I'm still you know, there's still much more work to be done there. But that is basically the difference I see in the silence. And it goes back to what I said earlier, the things that the thing about faith in fear and trembling doesn't is, is all goes back to God speaks. God says to Abraham, uh, and even before we get to Moriah, God says to Abraham, you're going to have a kid, even though, uh, your loins, your and Sarah's loins are dead. You're going to get a kid from death. That is the beginning of faith. That's the sort of faith responding to particular concrete divine speech and promise. That in, entails its own problematic form of speech that Kierkegaard uses silence to talk about. And Derrida picks up on that to talk about the kind of deconstructive silence he wants to talk about. But in the process, we lose the what Kierkegaard is concerned about. Um, and so I just wanted to bring that back into into focus for the reader.
1: Yeah, and continuing and kind of teasing this out a little more, uh, this tension uh, you're noting between this kind of particular versus universal It's noted in the text that Derrida seems to be trying to make Abraham into a sort of nutshelled version of humanity, which goes against Kierkegaard's aim of teasing out the unique individuality of Abraham. And in this way, Derrida is playing as a sort of uh, Hegelian of the sort that Kierkegaard was always trying to uh, critique and push against. Uh, He's trying to have a uh, the particular swallowed up by the truth of the whole and unwittingly becomes a part of Kierkegaard's clearance sale of ideas that he mentions at the beginning of Fear and Trembling. Instead of seeing the radical act of faith, he was trying to tease out. Um, what's been lost here and what is Derrida missed more broadly speaking?
0: Yeah, well, at least at least according to me, and, and I'm no Derrida, but at least in my reading, um, this, this is... Uh, this is just further playing out uh, the sort of key themes that I've already identified. Um, so these are ripples of the stuff we've already been talking about. Um, but I, I see two moves here or I, I try to, I try to point out two ways in which uh, to, as I say in the book, Derrida plays Hegel um, without trying to play Hegel in relationship in specifically in relationship to Kierkegaard and a uh, Kierkegaard. Kierkegaardian faith, um, uh, for example, that we run into in Fear and Trembling. Um, uh, the first is that he, as I've already pointed out, at least it seems obvious to me, that he just gets Abraham wrong. Um, he mistakes Abraham for a night of resignation, uh, where Di Silencio is saying that is that Abraham is a knight of faith precisely not a night of resignation. Um, And so there's a way in which uh, I think once you can see that in Kierkegaard's text, in text of Fear and Trembling, and then you're reading The Gift of Death, and you're just seeing how uh, egregious is the mistaken identity in The Gift of Death, where Derrida, it's just clearly... Talking about Abraham as a knight of resignation, but as if that's Kierkegaard's Abraham, or as if that's the Abraham of fear and trembling. Um, you know, it's like once you see that, you just can't look away. It just be, it just becomes enormous, uh, at least for me, um, as a misreading and, and a problem and for, for Derrida's reading. But in that sense, uh, I I say uh, Derrida plays Hegel because. Um, Kierkegaard, particularly in *Fear and Trembling*, is making fun of Hegel for misunderstanding Abraham. That Hegelian philosophy and particularly Hegelian Christianity, at least as De Silencio or Kierkegaard understands it, uh, m- cannot make sense of Abraham. Is it cannot but make a case, do a, mis- a case of mistaken identity. It will mistake. Doesn't have a category. Doesn't have a category for the Abraham that we get in *Fear and Trembling*. So it mistakes Abraham for something else. So, on that on that level, just getting Abraham wrong it, uh, in at least the Abraham we get in *Fear and Trembling*, Derrida plays Hegel in that way. Uh, you could see Kierkegaard making fun of him, of Derrida mistaking Abraham's identity in the *Fear and Trembling* in the way that that Kierkegaard makes fun of Hegel not being able to actually account for the actual faith of Abraham, at least as it's presented in Fear and Trembling, which, again, is not a close reading of the biblical text. It's not Abraham's Jewish uh, faith in relationship to God in the context of the history of Israel. It's a very Christian, supersessionist view. But so there's that similarity. not plays Hegel in that way. But I think there is another Way And this has more to do with deconstruction itself and not just Derrida's misreading, but the actual movement of deconstruction that Derrida gets right, or I think does, and um, is not a, mis- it's not a misreading, but it's actually the effect of deconstruction itself as an intentionless, a- agentless, uh, contentless structural movement that is infinite and incessant. Um, so even If Derrida did read All of Fear and Trembling and did get Abraham right, or did engage the Abraham that's actually in the text of Fear and Trembling as a night of faith and not a night of resignation, and did a deconstructive encounter and engagement with that content of the book, there is still a way that because of the nature of deconstruction as limitless, incessant, contentless structural movement, that is always... uh, recontextualizing particulars in in broader contexts of recontextualization, broader structural contexts. So uh, general structures. So, uh, you know, in chapter four of Fear and Trembling, the structure of sacrifice gets, uh, uh, and the structure of the gift, they both get embroiled into a general structure of sacrifice. So the movement of deconstruction itself incessantly and just Automatically, because of what deconstruction is, though it does it doesn't exist, um, its movement, its effects are always moving, and so always recontextualizing particulars within broader structural uh, contexts, gen- more general structures, wherein binary oppositions get displaced, uh, structural connections get, get gets made, etc., um, and so that is a sense in which the movement of deconstruction is always going further than all the particulars that deconstruction is always engaging and moving through, right? To recontextualize particulars in wider structural grammatical contexts of and movements of substitutability, for example, Um, rendering everything substitutable. And so there's, uh, that is a kind of recontextualizing in a broader general structure. And in that way, also, I think deconstruction itself plays Hegel in a certain way or mimics the movement of Hegel's philosophy in relationship to the particulars and in in particular the the concreteness of uh, the faith of Abraham that we get in Fear and Trembling. So the Fear and Trembling language that, that De Silencio uses to critique and satirize Hegel is, Hegel is, and his entire generation, contemporary generation of Hegelian Christians, is everyone's wants to go further. Everyone's going further than Abraham. We can't stop with Abraham. Uh, we have to uh, progress beyond, go further, recontextualize, and you could say that that is precisely what. De- the movement of deconstruction does to everything. Deconstruction is always going further and recontextualizing. So no particular can absolutize itself as the ground or center of all that is, or the entire scene or of the metaphysics. It's always being displaced and recontextualized into movements of substitutability that keep moving and keep getting bigger. Um, and that is to go further than Abraham. And so, What I try to show, and it's still, it's kind of, uh, it's dizzying. I still get dizzy just thinking about it. But deconstruction is a movement that uh, recontextualizes Hegel, right? So deconstruction goes further than Hegel, but in going further than Hegel, it out Hegel's Hegel in relationship to Kierkegaardian faith. It is, it's even a more radical going further than the particularity of confessional faith, than Hegel uh, does. Because Hegel goes further to end in a comprehensive whole. The deconstructive going further never ends in any whole, but is always recontextualizing, recontextualizing infinitely. And so it's even so derrida deconstruction out Hegel's Hegel in relationship to concrete particularity and in this case, the concrete particularity of faith that we get that at least I'm trying to Uh, help us see is in there in uh, his reading of fear and trembling and, and within the context of his, of his wider work.
1: Yeah, in the final dialogue chapter of the book, the student actually finds Derrida catching on to something in Fear and Trembling, although perhaps somewhat accidentally. Uh, there's a disruption of a certain economic logic when Abraham raises his knife, but there's also a restoration when God intervenes and prevents Isaac from being killed. What has Derrida stumbled onto here?
0: Um. Yeah, and this... Uh... This is where uh, it's there's just there's so much comical uh, there's so much comical stuff going on uh, in the misreadings, at least for me, uh, that I think and hope Derrida would have appreciated. Um, uh, but, yeah, so my what I think Derrida misses and why I think it's, you know, I I frame it in a, as, a, as a comical, ultimately comical move is that I see Derrida eventually giving uh, a reading of the, the structure of the faith of Abraham in, at least as given us by De Silencio um, uh, it, towards the end of the gift of death. Um, but it's accidental. And for me, comical, because what, what he gives us that actually does finally resonate quite strongly with what I see De Silencio presenting as the faith of Abraham in Fear and Trembling, as double movement, um, what, De- what Derrida presents uh, that comes close to that is in his mind and what he presents is the deconstruction of the faith of Abraham in Fear and Trembling. And because okay, this all goes back to the original sin of his reading, which is he, he identifies Abraham as a knight of faith, as a knight of resignation and not actually the knight of faith that Abraham actually is in, in fear and trembling. So as a knight of resignation, uh, uh, yes, Abraham, uh, you know, exhibits the structure of uh, sacrifice and responsibility that we all inhabit Um, but the problem is that's not Abraham the Abraham we get in Fear and Trembling is the Knight of Faith because of the double movement which is always infinite resignation which is simultaneously accompanied and even grounded by and grounded in the movement of faith that holds to the divine promise and never lets Isaac go but always holds uh, firmly to Isaac and that, uh, uh, so you get, so the the faith of Abraham, and this is going to get a little little messy. I'm I'm not being very linear here. Uh, so the faith of Abraham that we get in the double movement via De Silencio, um shows how the sac- Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac isn't actually a sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, but that is simultaneously a holding to and a getting Isaac back, all in one paradoxical double movement of giving up and holding to at the same time. And Abraham does both of that stuff. Uh, and so the the giving up of Isaac is not actually a giving up. It's a, it's a way to hold on to. And what Derrida does in his reading by identifying abraham as the knight of resignation in other words all abraham does is give up isaac and then saying that the movement of giving back is what god does afterwards god sees that abraham is willing to sacrifice so then god gives god back and there's strong evidence for that kind of reading in the biblical text but that's not the reading we get in fear and trembling um by by reading it that way, then Derrida shows how God's decision to give God back interrupts the structure of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, and makes it impossible to fulfill itself. So that what Deacon, what Derrida's deconstructive reading of Abraham as a knight of resignation, as his attempt to sacrifice Isaac as the absolute sacrifice of ab, absolute sacrifice of sacrifice. Um, shows that Abraham is unsuccessful. Abraham's attempt to sacrifice Isaac is always interrupted by God's gift of Isaac. And so, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac that Abraham is attempting is to sacrifice all, uh, economies of reward and exchange, but because God decides to give Isaac back, um, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac turns into something that earns him the reward of getting Isaac back. And so uh, when you put Abraham's sacrifice and then God's giving back together, it ruptures this sort of closed economy of sacrifice that um, wants to solely give up all exchange and reward. And this is where the language of economy gets gets into the gift of death in chapter four. Uh, So but. But the gist of it is, what Derrida thinks is his deconstruction of the faith of Abraham as the sacrifice of Isaac is able to show how sacrifice cannot be uh, opposed to the gift uh, the gift of, God, of, of grace, and the gift can't be completely separated from a general structure of sacrifice. And so every sacrifice that is attempting to be a sacrifice, without reward, is somehow inscribed within a general structure of sacrifice that entails reward. Similarly, God's attempt to give the gift of Isaac as free, absolute gift, uh, free of any structure of sacrifice, cannot succeed because uh, it is a gift back to Abraham as a reward for his sacrifice. So even God cannot God's attempt to to do a pure gift cannot escape a general su- structure of sacrifice. So all that to say, I'm sorry, that went on a little bit long, but all that to say, what Derrida thinks he's shown us by the deconstruction of Abraham is that the Abraham sacrifice is not actually a sacrifice of Isaac, but is a way to hold on to Isaac. And so those th- there's a rupture there and a simultaneity, a paradoxical simultaneity there. Um, boy, and that's the big reveal at the end of the Gift of Death. But uh, of course, in my re- if you've been reading Fear and Trembling closely, uh, and you have you know a, a sense of a theological radar at all, um, it's clear that that is actually the faith of Abraham that we get in Fear and Trembling. It's a sacrifice that. Never means to give up Isaac, but is actually always simultaneously a holding on to Isaac. So what Derrida ends up with as the deconstruction of the faith of Abraham is actually for the first time gets close to an actual reading of the real faith of Abraham that is there on the pages of Fear and Trembling. And so that's what I mean by the accidental discovery. And he never seems to acknowledge it, which is part of the the comical nature. Uh, of the encounter is that what he thinks is his deconstruction of what I would end up saying Kierkegaardian faith based on this Abraham, this model of Abraham, uh, is in fact what Christian faith is all along for Kierkegaard. And so Derrida can't avoid appearing comical because he thinks he's deconstructed something which actually is actually just getting around to the very thing itself for the first time, and he doesn't seem to be aware of it. So that's the sort of accidental resonance that I think shows up at the end of The Gift of Death.
1: Yeah, to tie this off, so you wrote this book as a critique of a certain strand of philosophy that was being overextended to meet certain concrete ethical commitments. In its place, you've indicated a Kierkegaardian faith that is Uh, actually, in your view, more capable of feeding these commitments. Uh, This is something of a risk since Christian existentialism will be seen by many uh, as a sort of archaic relic at best. So I'm wondering if you have any closing thoughts on what Kierkegaard might have to offer people looking for a way to animate their political commitments. What do you see this sort of confessional faith offering that may have been missing for many would-be activists' lives?
0: Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great way to end it. I appreciate that. Uh, well, and first of all, I think I would, I would want to begin responding by questioning the identity of Kierkegaard as a Christian existentialist. Um, uh, and you know, here they're smarter people than me that are no more about existentialism and the history of philosophy who read Kierkegaard. So this is just my view, but I, I think you can make an argument um, that while Kierkegaard, if you're reading the whole corpus, there's clearly some strong resonances with the themes of philosophical existentialism. And if by that we're meeting kind of the thing that emerges post-World War II in France, but wider in Europe, sort of with, uh, you know, Sartre at the at the center of it, or one of the centers of it. Camus, that's that sort of modern, mid twentieth century, post World War II um, kind of view of existentialism, with with Sartre's shadow hanging largely there over the scene, and then of course uh, picking up on Nietzsche and Kierkegaard as two sort of proto existentialists. There's all sorts of reasons uh, to think about Kierkegaard in in that conversation, right? There's I, So I'm not disputing that at all. Um, but I think that I would, I think, want to try to argue that Kierkegaard himself doesn't actually fit into the category of existentialism or an existentialist, even as a Christian existentialist. I wouldn't say he's a Christian version of existentialism. I would say, actually, if you if you reading the Christian bit of his stuff, which which I think is in the DNA of what he's doing all the time, um, it's actually his Christianity that that ruptures any sort of attempt to to fit him into the category of uh, existentialism as that, as we think about that as a category in the history of philosophy, in the modern history of philosophy. So I would want to, so I'd, I'd want to complicate that a little bit first. And so for me, that particular risk of, oh, Kierkegaard, right, existentialism, really important and interesting, but it was, you know, it had its moment and we all grew out of it. And and we're thinking about Kierkegaard and Sartre and Camus and all that stuff after World War II. That doesn't, that's not so much of a risk for me, because I, I think you can argue where actually Kierkegaard isn't, you can't contain Kierkegaard in that category, and that box. I think he's... He breaks out of it all over the place. And so we have to deal with him in other ways. So that, you know, I I might be wrong, but I would want to try to make that argument. Uh, But I think, but Kierkegaard and the the way I'm trying to read him is still incredibly risky. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. That's one of the risks. Um, The others, other kinds of risks, I guess that I see and feel more more urgently, uh, right or wrong, um, is especially in modern liberal progressive uh, contexts, um, uh, particularly around ethical concerns, progress, ethically progressive uh, contexts and commitments to, to justice and activism, is the risk the regarding risk of um, rooting ethics in the ground of a very particular (laughs) confessional faith and, uh, and divine promise and action. So rooting ethics, that's rooting the world and our neighbor and everything uh, and, 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 uh, and interpreting and approaching all those relations, those creaturely relations as rooted in and informed by and shaped by uh, a confessional faith. That's, that's risky business Uh, rather than, Good progressive ethics being the root and indeed the content for anything that that passes for faith and religion that is viable today can only demonstrate that viability by showing it's th- that it's good ethics, it's good progressive ethics. That I think is the general ethos of of our our time in liberal progressive context, and for very good reason, because faith, particularly Christian faith, has been very bad news for very very many, if not most people, uh, in through the history of the world. So, um, it's risky given the terrible, ugly, violent, destructive history of Christian faith to make a Kierkegaardian move and say our ethical relationship to all our neighbors and to creation itself and to ourselves is rooted in a confessional understanding of the Jesus business. That is, that's very risky and scary and, 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 It's only inhabitable, it's only viable, and this is part of what I try to show in the book, if particular things are the case, which is that God we happen to be talking about is the God who is incarnate and with us and for us on the underside of history in the midst of and in solidarity with the marginalized and the oppressed. It's only in that case that this might be a risk worth taking, um, particularly from the ethical point of view. Uh, so it's very risky um and i I'm trying to inhabit this pos- this location personally just very sensitively and carefully and always from day to day um but the, the and then the last thing I guess in terms of what like my take on a Kierkegaard, confessional Kierkegaardian faith that I'm trying to pitch as as possible and, and as a resource for progressive ethical visions and commitments. Um, I don't, for me, I don't see Kierkegaard on faith as necessary for anyone to be motivated by and fired up and committed to good progressive ethics, the kind of ethics that I myself share. I think there's plenty that's happening all the time anyway. There's plenty of reasons without bothering with, with any kind of religion or faith, much less the Christian and Jesus business, that is motivating and obligating and committing folks to good progressive ethical lives of activism. No one needs Kierkegaard to do that. But for me, I guess my concern is if you're already silly enough to be a confessing Christian and believe in some robust way about this crazy Jesus story. And particularly if you live in or have been shaped by Traditional conservative versions of that Christian story and version of uh, the God for us and Jesus business, then Kierkegaard uh, for me is a very hopeful, uh, prophetic possibility for being in conversation with those sorts of Christian folks who are my people. That's that's who raised me and where I'm from, and I'm still uh, connected with those communities. Kierkegaard, the Kierkegaardian faith, in the way I'm reading him, especially in conjunction with liberationist voices, allows me to argue with fellow traditional confessional Christians that if you want to be, if you want to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and be a follower of Jesus in your day-to-day life and all that kind of traditional language that we uh, confessing evangelicals uh, like to use day in and day out, well, that means uh, if this, the, if it's really Jesus you're talking about, Kierkegaard helps us see. Well, then that means a life of anti-capitalist, anti-colonialist, anti-racist, anti-patriarchal, et etc., radical discipleship. And so, for me, the contribution is for those folks who are already. Uh, for better or for worse, often for worse, um, making life commitments around this crazy Jesus business, and particularly in conservative contexts for Jesus folk, Kierkegaard is a great way to say, "Okay, let's take Jesus seriously." Are you are you really ready to be a radical anti-capitalist uh, as an as an American evangelical? And that's the that's what is hopeful and seems important to me, and where I would want to argue, yeah, Kierkegaard. Could be a resource in those contexts, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to say anyone needs to reguard if they're already out there doing good progressive activism to transform the world for creaturely flourishing. That's that's those are just folks I want to be in partnership with.
1: Right. Yes, that's a good note to end on. So, as a final question, I always like to ask: uh, Where's your thought process going now? Are you working on anything, you know, aside from the big? thousand page academic monograph on deconstruction. Yeah, do we have yeah, anything yeah. else?
0: Yeah. I'm finally getting back to that original project, which was to say everything about deconstruction of theology. Right. Yeah. Um, In five uh, volumes. Low. Yeah. 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 Uh, I do have um, a next, a book that I'm just starting on. Um, well, I just came out with a, a sort of introductory to Carl Bart, who's the other sort of Kierkegaard and Carl Bart are the sort of two main uh, Western European theological voices that I wrestle with. And then, uh, Cone, Dolores Williams, liberationist uh, voices are, are the, on the other shoulder. And I'm trying to always think with all those folks in my head. So I just came out with a sort of a a companion, uh, introduction to, to Bart's work, which is trying to pitch Bart in very similar ways. And my reading of Kierkegaard in Bart is very, I mean, my reading of Kierkegaard in this book, uh, is very you can see Bart, uh, you know, pulling the, the cables and pulleys in the background, and I and I I'm transparent about it at several places, um, so that's just out. And then the next the next piece is is the follow up to both this Bart introduction and to the Kierkegaard Derrida book, where I you know where I I point out that um, I try to open show how Kierkegaard opens the door to this sort of a progressive liberationist ethics of faith, but without really engaging the liberationist voices that are needed uh, to bring out those dimensions robustly. And so that engagement, which, which then will also require real being very critical about Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard's guard's own work. And the same would be, be true of Barth um, in light of the, the liberationist voices. So that is the work that both of these books have Left to be done, and that's what I'm trying to do now. And so I'm really trying to uh, look at using, <clears throat> Bart would be the primary person, Kierkegaard would be involved, but I'm sort of beginning with uh, Bart's engagement uh, in, in, with Cohn and Cohn's engagement with Bart, this Black liberation theologian, and really trying to think through what, um, to use Cohn's language, uh, de honkifying Jesus. Uh, would really mean for traditional confessional Christian faith, particularly in white faith and church communities. Um, What would the blackness of Jesus mean in the way that Cone intends to mean it both having to do with skin color and the race and racialized categories, but not also having to do with just the social location of of marginalization that can travel and be, and be resonant in different contexts. Um, apart from white white supremacy uh, what would that look like is it possible or are folks like Bart and Kierkegaard and then perhaps me just are is our our Jesus our Christology and so our Christian faith just hopefully embedded in a, a whiteness that is fundamentally theologically and ethically problematic or is there a way to To hear Cohn and womanist theologians and queer theologians and theologians of disability seriously and and still hear those voices respond and, and find a confessional faith in Jesus that is somewhat traditional in its confession that actually calls us to radical social and political commitments in the way all those liberationist voices are calling us to. So I'm trying to kind of take the next step um, and hash that out for myself, starting with race and colonialism, but then moving into intersectionality uh, pretty robustly as, as by the end of the book. So that's, we'll see. It's, you know, I don't know uh, if it's, if, if it's something that we can pull off i'm i'm always on the verge of giving up on my uh relatively traditional confessional christian faith uh, but i'm not there yet so
1: yeah it, well you've certainly got a lot to work out there so <laughs> yeah
0: absolutely you'll,
1: you'll have to come back when it's done um, uh, but in any left. case um, thank you so much for being with us for the for this and talking about uh Talking to me about this book. So,
0: yeah, thank you, Stephen. I really feel honored by the questions. They're so careful and thoughtful and demonstrate such a great reading of my text. Uh, It's an honor and a privilege. I really appreciate it.